0: This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Inflation is here. After a 40-year hiatus, the phenomena characterized by rising prices and an attending falling of purchasing power had reached 8.2% at the end of September 2022 before the demand shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, many had warned for decades that accommodative monetary policy and mounting federal debt might eventually invite inflation. But it was not until in the wake of the pandemic, with the passage of the nearly $2 trillion fiscal stimulus bill known as the American Rescue Plan, that broad, persistent inflation became an undeniable reality. American consumers discouraged and disoriented by the effects of inflation are eager to understand its causes. Did macroeconomists anticipate the danger of inflation from massive fiscal stimulus only to have their advice ignored? Or after two generations of stable prices, were both policymakers and economists alike complacent about the danger of overstimulating an economy rapidly recovering from a pandemic? To answer these questions, PubWonk has enlisted the help of two prominent Harvard economists to serve as host and guest to discuss the source of the current inflation surge and the reasons many economists either missed the warning signals or failed to effectively dissuade policymakers from making choices that greatly exacerbated the problem. My guest is Professor Larry Summers, an economist who served as the 71st United States Secretary of the Treasury from 1999 to 2001, and as director of National Economic Council from 2009 to 2010, and as president of Harvard University from 2001 to 2006, where he is a professor and director of the Mosabar Romani Center for Business and Government at Harvard Kennedy School. Our guest host for the discussion is Professor Edward Glazer, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University who has served as director of the Talbot Center for State and Local Government and director of the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston. He has published dozens of papers and four books on cities' economic growth, law, and economics. It is a pleasure to note that Professor Glazer is also a member of Pioneer Institute's board of directors. The discussion is from an October 19th live webinar hosted by Pioneer for our members and includes answers to audience questions at the end. When we return, Hubwonk guest host, Professor Ed Glazer, will discuss causes and potential cures for inflation with former Secretary of the Treasury and Harvard University President, economist Professor Larry Summers.
1: Now, Larry, I want us to start in February 2021. In fact, we can think about a particular day on February 2021, February 4th, 2021. And I want to remind our listeners that as of February 2021, the 12 month inflation rate had been 1.7% for that, that month. And going back over, gosh, roughly 30 years, with the modest exception of the oil price hikes in 2008, inflation had been incredibly stable and incredibly low, at least relative to the experience that those of us who lived through the 1970s and early 1980s had gotten used to in those decades. On February 4th, 2021, one. You wrote, first, while there are enormous uncertainties, there is a chance that macroeconomic stimulus on a scale closer to World War II levels than normal recession levels will set off inflationary pressures of a kind we have not seen in a generation, with consequences for the value of the dollar and financial stability. You were, of course, writing about the American Rescue Plan, which did pass. It was a $1.9 trillion uh, bill. Um, How is this missed, what do we learn about, you know, how did you get it right? And so many other people get it wrong. And what do we learn about the way that you know, macroeconomists think about the world
2: that, that they were able to get this so wrong? It's a great question, Ed. And I don't presume to completely know the answer. And by the way, the fact that you quoted me as saying with consequences for the dollar, and in fact, the dollar has gone up rather than going down, shows that even while I think I got the big picture right, there were important aspects of this situation that I didn't see. Let me tell you what my method was. My method was a combination of arithmetic and historical analogy. The arithmetic was looking at how far below trend incomes were running, and seeing that they were running about $30 billion a month below trend, and then observing that we were proposing to augment them by $150 to $200 billion a month, and thinking that even if capacity in the economy was robust, which seemed unlikely after the pandemic, that would create very substantial excess demand, which would generate inflation. That was the arithmetic uh, that i did the historical analogies that i looked to were three world war ii where we spent 25 percent of gdp on defense and this was about and this was about 15 percent of uh, gdp in stimulus all to be delivered in a year and that produced substantial excess demand and world war ii case we used price controls that was not something we were going to do now second example i looked to was a formative experience for me in economics the vietnam war inflation where lbj's collision between guns and butter combined with a fairly craven fed led inflation to go from one percent in 1966 to having a six handle to the nearest integer by 1969 and this seemed like something much larger than that. And the third example I looked to was the Obama stimulus, where there was a consensus that the stimulus would have been better if it had been larger, a consensus I very much shared in at the time, but political constraints did not permit. But the consensus was that perhaps it should have been twice as large. and relative to the size of the gap that had to be filled this stimulus was about five times as large as the obama stimulus so it seemed to me that it was fairly clearly overstimulated and then on top of that you had the fed with the with the accelerator to the floor between zero interest rates and massive quantitative easing And you had a big savings overhang that was waiting to be spent from all the people who couldn't go to restaurants or take vacations in uh, in, uh, 2020. So it seemed to me obvious that if there was such a thing as overstimulation, we were headed for it. Now, the question that puzzled me at the time was why everybody else didn't agree. I've been doing this for a long time, and I frequently have policy views about which there is not consensus. As to the economic outlook, I can't remember another moment when I thought the consensus outlook was so misguided. And so I don't really understand why the consensus view wasn't closer to the view I expressed. I think elements of the explanation include uh, the following. If you do a statistical analysis on a number that is roughly constant for 40 years, you will conclude that nothing can change it very substantially. And so any econometric analysis of the last 40 years kind of concluded that inflation was impervious to change. And a lot of people were acting on the basis of those kinds of econometric uh, analysis. Like that's one very important technical source of error. I think a second uh, technical uh, source, a second source of error was just a broader phenomenon of um, short memories and wanting to be wrong in new ways. The problem, For the previous decade, had been what I had labeled secular stagnation, insufficient demand, inflation below its target. Everybody who had said there was going to be a lot of inflation, there was a famous letter written in late 2009 or early 2010 by a whole set of conservative economists and financiers warning that Ben Bernanke had the country on the brink of hyperinflation. All the Warners had been wrong. And that discouraged people from being Warners for uh, 40 years. I think that's the second thing. I think the third thing was there was deference to people who hated Donald Trump and who Donald Trump hated. And they had decided to embark on uh, this plan. I think one of the less commented on of the Federal Reserve sins, which are many in this period, was the failure to strike any cautionary note at all about the magnitude of the fiscal stimulus uh, that was being provided uh, during uh, this uh, period. I think the Biden administration was influenced more by macro-political factors than macro-economic factors. There was a very understandable feeling that, as Rahm Emanuel put it, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And here we had this new moment of opportunity. And so there was a desire to do a whole set of socially important things. And I think there was some wishful thinking. With respect to arithmetic, I think, and maybe this is a final point to make, um, many have been sharply critical of those who were in authority. And obviously, I had a very different view about inflation than they did. I think it's important to recognize in assessing the Fed or in assessing Secretary Yellen or in assessing the Biden administration that the positions they took were in line with the consensus of economic forecasters, were in line with the vast majority of uh, Wall Street uh, forecasters. And so this is, I think, more of an intellectual failure of the macroeconomic policy community than it is then it should be thought of as the politicians discarded the advice of experts. Because most of the advice of experts actually was kind of on the inflation is not a serious uh, problem uh, side. I would say also that some of this relates to the fact that some of the more purely academic analysts of these matters who don't think of their role in the system as being spending time in washington or kibitzing on uh policy but think of themselves as more pure scientists had um largely discredited themselves with a set of rather implausible and esoteric doctrines that led them to be largely tuned out of the policy community and tuned out by the policy community. And that tended to leave the field to the more politically minded uh, within uh, the economics profession. And that's an additional element of this.
1: Thank you, Larry, for that uh, very comprehensive answer. I want to follow up in particular about this being a failure of the macroeconomics profession, or, you know, let's just say the economics community writ large. And one way of thinking about what we do is there are sort of two things that are wrapped up in being an economist, let's say, over the last 70 or 80 years. One is the traditional worldly philosopher, right? The traditional person who drew on exactly the things that you drew on in making your, you know, Quite sensible and, and prescient prediction, um, which is you know the, the sort of things that Adam Smith knew. So we know a bit of, about history. We're able to do some some basic calculations. We have a lot of common sense, right? There's another tradition, which is you know the white lab coat scientist and if i think about someone like your uncle paul samuelson he was someone who was very much like on the cusp of those two things he was both a forerunner of the scientific path that economics would take but still you know he wrote columns and his columns said sensible things about about economic policy over the last 50 years there's no question that the science has defeated the worldly philosophy within our profession that if we look at our young kids Uh, The PhD students in our profession, they are being trained to be scientists and they're not being trained, in fact, to give wise and prescient advice to, you know, in your case, macroeconomic policymakers, in my case, you know, mayors. Um, What should we be doing differently about that? How should we be thinking about that? What's 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 how should economics be different along this
2: margin? So I think it's another uh, very good uh, question. I think there are two ways of seeing it. Um, One way to which I used to be more partial was that, you know, economics is losing its way into esoterica. It's turning itself into a branch of applied mathematics. Isn't that kind of unfortunate? And that was the way probably if you had asked me about this 15 or 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I would have tended to give an answer like that. I think today I would give a different answer. I think today I would describe it as part of the process of greater specialization. If they were trying to figure out how a suspension bridge would operate in 17th century England, it would have been reasonable to consult with Isaac Newton because he was a person who really understood forces in a uh, very good way. way and could perform calculations. Today's world has physicists, and it has engineers. In the 1960s, there would have been a number of academics who would have been among the first 10 phone calls you would have made if you wanted to make a judgment about GDP growth over the next two quarters that followed all the statistics and was aware of all the indicators. Today, there's no academic who would be who you would turn to. There are a set of people working in various financial institutions who are much more on top of all of that information. So I think what we're seeing is a pattern of increased uh, specialization which is in a way sad, because one likes to think of there being great Renaissance people who can be at uh, both the cutting edge of science and the cutting edge of practice. But it seems to me that as the world gets more complex, it's inevitably going to be the case uh, that there is going to be some greater division of uh, labor. And I think that's probably something that is all right. It doesn't explain why the more applied branch of our profession, the kinds of economists who make these forecasts, writing for the large forecasting firms like macroeconomic advisors or writing for Goldman Sachs's clients. Did such a bad job, which is, I think, still a question. But my assumption uh, would be that over time, there's going to be greater and greater uh, division of uh, labor. Uh, I meet um, economists, I meet students who kind of want to have a career like the career that I've been lucky enough uh, to have and want to get advice. And, you know, I sometimes tell them different things depending upon what their mix of interests and aptitudes uh, are. But I think there is this, I think it's good to have cutting edge science around uh, economics, you know, in a way, Uh, to use a different analogy, I think that there is a much greater cleavage than existed 75 years ago between the theoretical physics community and the community that provides advice on arms control strategy. And I think that's mostly for the better. I think the theoretical physics community is often unwise when it, and impractical, when it provides advice on arms control. I think some of the things that you have to understand to be a theoretical physicist, you don't have to understand to think sensibly about arms control policy or weapon systems. And I think something of that kind is uh, going on uh, within, uh, within, within economics. I do think there's a bit more percolation from the science through to the policy, just with significant lags. And I kind of think that that is OK. My guess is that, uh, in to take your area, Ed, um, 30 years from now, there will be economists who are thinking in fundamental ways about agglomeration and there will be economists who are advising mayors, and those communities will be less overlapping than they are today. And I think that's what we call progress through the division of labor. That's That would be my interpretation. So I am reluctant to challenge the, some of the requirements and some of the expectations that are around the scientific socialization that uh, you described. I think over time, it will be incumbent on the academic enterprise to find ways to train people to be good at making the kinds of decisions that Treasury secretaries uh, make. But I don't think that that necessarily means that the training that's being provided to people who wanna be lab scientists or scientist types should be uh, modified.
1: I'm also not sure in terms of the life cycle, right? It may well be that we wanna train our 24 year olds to be lab scientists and then have something that enables people to age gracefully into being more policy oriented people. That would be a program at the NBR or something something like that. I wanna ask one slightly impish question, right? Which you have to, have to forgive me for. Um, do you regret, when we go back to this, to your column in, on February 4th, do you regret uh, ending the column by saying the Biden plan is a vital step forward? Um, I mean, it's a it's a fairly clear endorsement, despite the fact that you were you know going out on a limb in terms of pushing against the uh, uh, the risks of inflation. Do you wish you had been less uh, less prone to give it an endorsement at the end of the day?
2: Uh, it. It says something interesting about how that column was read, um, that I have participated in probably 100 discussions of this type in the last six or six or nine months, and you were the first person to ask that question. So <laughs> exactly. I think it's safe to say that my endorsement was less than highly consequential, nor was it seen by some of my friends who did not appreciate the column as a very substantial uh, saving uh, saving grace? I think I'd say two things in all honesty, Ed. Um, one is that I think there is a question as to whether zero. I'm sure I think two trillion was too much. I think I think in all honesty, I think in retrospect. Zero probably would have been a better number than two trillion, but on the basis of the information that I had at the time, I don't think that was true, and so I think my statement was actually a kind of reasonable one, and I think that there is a balance that one has to uh strike, and that I'm constantly sort of mindful of striking, which is. One has to, it seems to me that if one is writing for the broad audience and the broad community and the broad policy process, one has to balance articulating what one sees as true, which what's the point if you're not doing that, and providing information that can guide and providing direction with creating a capacity for one to be heard. Right. And um, that I, I make no apology for the fact that that influences uh, what, how I, how I write things. And so in all honesty, I think I would not have uh, withdrawn that, pa- I don't think I made a mistake by uh, including that, uh, including that sentence.
1: Totally reasonable. OK, so two elements in inflation uh, that sort of push pushes in slightly different directions. So one is housing. Um, housing is likely, if anything, and I'd like you you to explain this because you've, you've written it on this, it's likely certainly not to go away anytime soon. The housing component to inflation, if anything, it might even even increase. The second is oil. Um, oil has a direct component, which is taken out in the core inflation numbers. But there are also indirect components that oil has throughout the economy. And we have a, a I'm going to give a, a unashamed uh, plug for our PhD student Robbie Minton, who has a very nice job market paper on how you filter out oil, which gets you, you know, maybe perhaps one fourth of the burst in inflation can be, or the combination of the direct and indirect effects. And at least, you know, when I look at the oil futures markets, it looks like it looks like people think that oil is going to mean revert. Somewhat. So that's likely to be a slightly cooling force. How do you think about oil versus housing? How do you, you know, which, and there's a lot that's wrapped up in that both, both the sort of, you know, role of supply chains in oil or role of the war in oil um, and, you know, looking forward.
2: So let me say something about housing first and then say something about oil. Um, With respect to housing, there is a question whether in measuring prices, You should measure the prices that people pay or are paid, or you should measure the new prices that are struck. So every month, most people pay the same rent they paid last month. And a few people have a new lease. And if you look through uh, 2021 and the first few months of 2022, very clearly, new leases were going up by 15%, but most people were not getting new leases. And so how should you measure the rate of inflation? The CPI averages in with low weight the 15% who are getting new leases and the vast majority who are paying the same amount they paid last month. What that means is that even after new leases stop going up, the CPI is going to be going up for a quite substantial length of time. So even if new leases only go up at 2% annual rates from here, at the end of 2023, housing inflation in the CPI will be running at 6 to 7%. And in the core CPI, even if everything else was zero, uh, core CPI would be running about 2.5% to 3%. Uh, so those are the facts, and then there's a question as to how you should interpret them. I'm inclined to give I'm inclined to think that the CPI does it a reasonable way. So for example, when we look at wage data where the same phenomenon happens, most people have the same wage that they have last month. That's certainly true for you and me at Harvard. But after a year or so, people get wage inc- uh, but people get their salaries adjusted once a year unless they move jobs so there's a case just like the case with respect to housing that you should look at the people who are moving jobs to figure out where the labor market is going i find it interesting that not a single one of the people who go through all this analysis and then conclude that inflation is low because new leases are not going up. Not a single one of them pays any attention to the fact that the gap between job switchers and other workers is at a record high right now, suggesting the likely acceleration of- can you, Larry, can
1: you explain that? Like, I'm not sure that that, that was clear. The, what, what define what you mean by the gap between job switchers and- So. You can look at what happened
2: to wages averaged across all Americans, or you can look at what happened to the wages of the people who switched jobs last, uh, in the last few months. Usually, those two things move together. We're at a moment right now when there's an unprecedented gap between those two uh, things. What that tells me is that the labor market is very tight. That there's a lot of wage pressure, that when Harvard hires a new professor, they give that new professor a big premium wage, and that over time, the wages of people like you and me will catch up. So that tells me that we have a lot of wage inflation to come, just as the core logic or the private sector rent indices last year told me that we had a lot of housing inflation to come. I understand the logic of people who say that this year private rents are no longer going up, new leases are not going up so fast, therefore we shouldn't worry so much about housing inflation. The problem is that the same logic says we should worry more about wage inflation, and none of them are intellectually consistent because almost all of them are politically motivated by a desire to push for easier policy. And I think one of the ways in which our profession has not distinguished itself is the strong correlation between people's technical judgments and uh, their political uh, loyalties. Ed, oil's a really interesting question. I am struck by the disjunction between the... Forward market judgment that you describe, and which I share, which I share as being an accurate description, and the view of what I would call the Dan Jurgen set, the set of people who count barrels, follow the oil markets very closely, and who tend to see substantial, like, a substantial risk of oil price inflation from things like the Saudis. Uh, and the Russians. Now, of course, the market knows all that. And so one can just say, follow the market. I think a difficult question is, what is the demand estimate that is implicit in the market's view? And many who are close to the markets tell me that the reason why the market is forecasting um, a decline in oil prices is that they're factoring in a lot of demand suppression from uh, recession um, in uh, the next year. I don't know whether that's right. There's a small technical factor that explains this, which is there are many more oil producers who want to hedge by selling forward than there are oil consumers who want to hedge by buying forward. And That means that there's a tendency for the price to be low. I don't think that's, I think that's a few dollars, that's not $20. And so I think there is still a question um, about oil. Last thing I would say is uh, you referenced one of your students' papers, which I've not had the privilege of reading. In general, I think almost all analyses that call themselves supply-side analyses and focus on single markets are likely to confuse more than they illuminate with respect to inflation for a variety of reasons, one of which is when the price of gasoline goes up and people still have to drive to work and they spend more money on gasoline, they spend less money on, anything, on everything else, which, In a small way, but attached to a large number of products, reduces the demand for those products and therefore reduces their price. But nobody's saying what the effect of the gasoline price increase is ever factors into its contribution to overall inflation. The deflationary impact it has on a large number of other uh, sectors. So, in general, I would caution your listeners that um, for many phenomena, a macro view is better than a micro view. Another example is um, people forecasting stock market earnings. The people who do it on a company-by-company basis almost always miss all the big moves because the big moves are associated with recessions and uh, the like. And often the people who forecast total earnings better are the people who try to forecast what's going to happen to the overall economy and then think about total profits relative to the overall economy. And I think something similar is true with respect to inflation.
1: Very, very wise. The, um your comment about oil price drops d- during a recession reminds me, of course, of this this great urban fact that the Empire State Building came in twenty five percent underestimate because the cost of of steel dropped so much during the during the Great Depression. Before turning to the audience, I've I've got to ask the question that I think you know everyone wants to know how how long and how high uh, does the Federal Reserve have to uh, keep rates? What's your What's your either your expectation or your suggestion? And what's your openness to other forms of policy that might impact inflation, be it fiscal policy or, you know, the unorthodox tools touted by uh, some other uh, advocates?
2: I think price controls and the like are almost always failures and I see nothing in favor of them. I think that. Uh, The idea that inflation is caused by gouging and we should stomp on gouging, I don't think is a productive avenue, though I do favor more aggressive antitrust policies on long on on long run reasons. I think there are a set of positive supply side things that would be good to do anyway and are probably extra good to do at a moment of substantial inflation. It should not be forgotten that the somewhat unlikely coalition of Jimmy Carter, Edward Kennedy, and Stephen Breyer brought about airline deregulation in the context of the inflation of the 1970s. And so when I look at the degree of restrictions that there are on permitting for uh, energy, both renewable and non renewable, when I look at the Unproductive tariffs that we have in the United States that are adding perhaps two percent to uh, the uh, price level. When I look at restrictions and rules like uh, the Jones Act or the limitations on the number of medical uh, residency slots uh, that are available, or oh, Larry, sorry to
1: interrupt. We better explain what the Jones Act. Act is. It's a, a, you know, I hate it as much as you do, but at least we should we should define
2: the Jones Act is a set of rules that basically say that a foreign ship cannot take oil from Houston to Newark or other products and that make the price of everything in Puerto Rico and Hawaii much more expensive and make things much less reliably provided than uh, they otherwise would be You know, another another example is when British Airways flies from London to Boston to Los Angeles, is there any imaginable reason why it shouldn't be permitted to pick up American passengers in uh, Boston? There are a lot of examples of that kind, and this would be an opportunity to go after them, and it would make some contribution with respect to inflation. My strongest conviction, Ed, is that based on the experience of past uh, business cycles. Unfortunately, um, as Samuel Johnson said of Second Marriage, soft landings represent the triumph of hope over experience. And uh, the likelihood is that we will not bring inflation down sufficiently substantially to get near the Fed's 2% target without a period of inflation, without a period of unemployment that I think is likely to be six to the nearest uh, round, uh, round, uh, round number. And I think that awareness has not fully uh, permeated. And the fact that it hasn't probably is reducing the credibility of efforts to bring down uh, inflation. My best guess would be that the market's current judgment, which is that the terminal rate uh, will need to be 5% on Fed funds, is considerably more likely to be too low than to be too high. And so my guess would be uh, somewhat higher than that. But I have higher confidence in the view about the degree of slack that is necessary to reduce inflation than I do about the level of interest rates that is necessary to be associated with uh, disinflation. My guess is that there's more room uh, relative to what's priced into markets. I think already the Fed's September dot plot is looking obsolete in light of the subsequent uh, economic numbers.
1: Great. Okay. Now I'm going to pivot to questions that we received. So this one is a directly linked to what you just said. So um, here's, here's the quote. Alan Blinder argues most past landings have been soft. So this one likely will be two. Is this one like the others or not? My interpretation of what you just said is yes, it's likely to be like the others, but most landings have not been soft. They've been hard. Is that, is that. Alan, uh, Alan, Alan
2: Blinder's claim of that kind, I think has, no relevance to the current situation examples of the soft landings he cites are the soft landing starting with two and a half percent inflation in 1993 uh none of the soft landings that he cites began with inflation in excess of five percent um all of the instances he reviews in his very thoughtful history in which inflation was above five percent involved uh, hard landings. So I don't think there is anything in that history to uh, support the view that we will now be able to organize a, a soft landing. If you ask me to make the best case for that proposition, it would not involve anything about the Fed and soft landings. It would involve other periods like wars when, uh, pr- when there was substantial inflation and the world came subsequently to see it as a one-off increase in prices rather than as an inflation problem. I don't think those examples have much relevance to today but if i had to defend the counter proposition to mine that would be what i those would be the kinds of arguments i would make i think it's simply absurd to suggest that there's relevant history of fed engineered uh soft landings the better argument for extreme optimism is to still cling to team transitory, that the inflation is going to recede on its own.
1: Great. Um, This this one, you've already mentioned both the the wages for new hires and new leases, but Surely there are other uh, measures which would be relevant in answering this question. What particular indicators or metrics are you monitoring that might lead you to assume that core inflation has peaked? So that's the that's the question. Is what? Which? And I presume there are many of our listeners who would be interested in knowing what other things do you think are important that make you you know would make you think that we've turned the corner beyond wages for new hires and
2: leases for new rental rates for new leases. So I would. So I look very hard at measures of labor market tightness. I look at the vacancy rate. I look at the quits uh, rate because when labor markets are tight, more people uh, quit. Um, I look at measures of capacity utilization because those have something to do with how much firms are likely to feel pressure and the ability to pass on uh, cost uh, increases. So those are some of the measures I look at. I also, um, would be uh, paying paying, um, attention to measures of inflation expectations. And I would be paying attention to the various measures that um, are produced by the different regional Federal Reserve banks um, that look, for example, at sticky price components of the CPI versus flexible price components, or look at the median CPI component, rather than looking at uh, some uh, average or look at what's called the trim mean uh, picture. I think one of the things one has to do to uh, be intellectually honest in these things is look at a wide range of indicators, always be constructing in one's own mind the best case that the position one holds is wrong, and then see how credible and convincing uh, you can make that case. It's partially responsive, perhaps, to your question, Ed, to remark that one discipline I use in forecasting that I find quite helpful is, if if I think my forecast is going to be of 4% core inflation, I say to myself, all forecasters are, always, are almost always wrong. And so I say, a year from now, which is more plausible, that we will have had 6% inflation or that we will have had 2% inflation? And unless those two things are in equipoise, I revise my view about 4% inflation. And I think many of the forecasts one hears these days have actually more the character of best reasonable case than the character of best judgment. It's not that it's unimaginable that inflation will be as those forecasts have it. But if you actually really forced those who were making the forecast to judge the probability of there being substantially low And substantially high, um, I don't think that they would be able to reach any conclusion other than that they were at more risk of being low. So, for example, another sentence I often hear from economic forecasters is My forecast is X, but the risks are mostly to the downside. (laughs) I would say, Well, why is that your forecast then? (laughs) If your forecast is that your forecast is going to be wrong, why don't you change your forecast? And so my forecasts may be no good, but they tend almost always to have the feature that the downside risks and the upside risks are roughly balanced because that's how I reached my forecast. Right, right. Do
1: you think that, this is again coming from the field, do you think we're going to get to a point in which uh, real rates
2: are actually positive? So- uh, Look, I think the-, the the problem about that is that real rates are a less well-defined concept once one engages in the world than they tend to be in theory. So is the, you know, are we talking about rates for the next three months, rates for the next year, for the next five years? Are we talking about inflation as measured by the GDP deflator, as measured by this deflator, as measured by that deflator? I. It supports my general line of argument, but I think this real rate thing has been a bit overdone by the Fed's critics. I get an email every morning from uh, the uh, Intercontinental Exchange, in which they report to me, based on the derivatives they trade, what the prevailing estimate is of one year real rates and of, uh, five year, of the five-year real rate starting one year from now. Those numbers are positive right now. Mm-hmm. So there are concepts of the real rate where we are already uh, positive. I already expressed the view that I think we're going to have to raise rates more. And since we're going to be raising rates and inflation, probably by middle of next year, we'll have come down at least some. I think we're going to be moving towards higher real rates than we have, <laughs> than we have now. But I think it's a little bit facile to simply say uh, the Fed funds rate is three, inflation has been seven over the last year, therefore we have obviously negative real rates. That while it supports the direction which I'd like to see policy move, that seems to me a bit facile as an argument.
1: That's that sounds right to me. You know, the way that I've typically thought about this in the housing context is is I think, as you as you comment suggested, comparing something like a, a 10 year 10 year rate to the 10 year Livingston expectations uh, for for four, which is a survey of forecasters. And that number of the 10 year inflation expectations is currently two and a half percent. So as you say, that is we do currently have positive real rates uh, in that in that dimension. Um, the. The. Uh, Moving on to the next, the next question, what do we think about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and its actual in- impact on inflation? I think you, you actually played a role in terms of, of public discussions about this, but it, it's a question that one of our, one of our seminar participants uh, asked.
2: I think the Inflation Reduction Act was a good thing. I think that it spurs renewable energy technology in a way that is quite desirable, I think it corrects over it corrects a decade of staggering underinvestment in uh, the IRS and enables us to have a more functional tax administration uh, system. Which, for a country with a seven trillion dollar tax gap over the next ten years, seven trillion dollars is, I think, an important thing, and I think it does some good things with respect to widening access to healthcare, And I think the best guess would be that over time, it is going to reduce uh, budget deficits. So I think the support uh, that it provides to energy supply and the reduction in budget deficits means that the path of inflation, other things equal, is likely to be slightly lower with it than it is without. I don't think it represents a major solution uh, to inflation. But unlike some of the earlier proposals, which I think would have quite substantially exacerbated inflation uh pressures, as obviously the Rescue Act uh, did, I think this one is um on the right side of the ledger. Uh I don't think that it was the greatest truth in advertising, to label it that. I think the right label for it was the renewable energy investment, um, renewable energy investment, healthcare broadening, and IRS strengthening act. Um, But I do think it will have the effect of reducing inflation. Great. Uh,
1: In the the live chat room, Tom Palmer writes, a local economist told me recently that... Quantitative easing and TARP had nothing to do with the run-up in equity and real estate prices since 2007, when otherwise inflation was flat. He blamed only low interest rates. Do you agree?
2: I think um, low interest rates get—I think, I think most market participants put more weight on QE relative to the level of interest rates than I would. Um— So I would agree directionally with the statement, but I certainly think uh, that uh, QE and price pressure effects uh, do matter. One of the more interesting phenomena in the economy that you probably understand better than I, Ed, that I think is worthy of attention is the quite substantial variation In the spread between mortgage rates and treasury rates. Um, And, you know, over the last years, uh, in round numbers, uh, treasury rate, 10-year treasury rates have gone up from uh, one and a half to four. That's two and a half percent. Mortgages have gone up from three to seven. That's four percent. What are the reasons for that difference? Some of it has to do with uh, volatility, which uh, makes, for the financially oriented here, the option value of 30-year mortgages uh, greater. But I don't think that's most of it. And a fair amount of it, I think, does have to do with the kinds of price pressure effects that are implicated in QT and QE. So my bottom line answer is direction, you were told directionally right but I wouldn't make nearly as bald a statement as your interlocutor did.
1: Great. I have two questions. I'm actually going to end on observations on the UK. Uh, But before that, I I think this other question in the chat room is is interesting and probably worthwhile sort of pointing out some things about the way that credit markets work uh, that that this question sets off. So the idea is, why doesn't the Fed keep interest rates low for borrowers like first-home mortgages, cars, small local businesses, government infrastructure and education, and raise it for large corporates and those who also borrow to protect their cash flow. Okay, so that was the question was, can the Fed do more to differentiate between different types of borrowers with with uh, its whatever its monetary policy is doing?
2: Not without being awfully socialist in a way that uh, is uh, pretty problematic. what's to stop me from borrowing money against my house and then putting it in a bond fund that invests in general motors bonds if uh something like that is uh underway in general uh capital will tend to find its way to the place where it earns the highest yield and if you try to interfere with that you're likely to end up with uh very substantial set of controls very substantial repression and a lot of uh, distort a lot of uh, distortionary effects in the 1960s we kind of tried your idea we had this idea that there were these institutions oriented to housing savings and loans and they had a Maximum interest rate that they could pay on deposits, and that would hold down the mortgage rate, so that there would be cheap capital available for housing. And what would happen is, when the Fed raised rates, they would lose all their money, and there wouldn't be any funding available for housing, and housing would crash in a particularly brutal way. And I think most economists think it was progress that we've moved uh, beyond that. So. Insofar as we want to subsidize particular things, I'd rather see us do it with direct government subsidy programs or with uh, tax incentives than do it through the selective provision of uh,
1: credit. Right. The important point being we really want to have government subsidies be clear and visible and understand what the cost will be, as opposed to doing them in a veiled way where we have no idea how many of these loans are going to go go bankrupt. OK, last question. The actual question was, how important is the pivot in the UK to the world economy? But I want you to just, if you if you're willing, just to like give us two minutes worth of observations on the UK, on uh, where are they going, what's what's happening, how should we think about this and how should they be doing it better? So.
2: Um. Look, it was a perfect storm. They uh, had a weak central bank. They had profoundly important supply shocks that were being inflationary. They had committed themselves to extremely expensive energy subsidies. And then you had a new government that decided it was going to surprise everybody by announcing. Massive tax cuts that caused everybody to wonder whether Britain was a banana republic or not the when people wonder whether whether you're a banana republic or not what they do is they sell your bonds and they sell your currency so anytime you start seeing a pattern where in a country its long term interest rate is going up and its currency is going down that's a moment to be very nervous the Authorities reacted sluggishly and inadequately to all of that. Then there was an additional problem, which was that many of the pension funds had, in effect, speculated in the bond market. So when the bond yields went up and the bond prices went down, they got margin calls, and they were forced to sell, which drove the whole thing into overdrive more higher yields, more selling, more selling, higher uh, yields, at which point uh, the British authorities have had to kind of do something like it was from a Saturday Night Live skit. Oops, we didn't mean it. And um, the prime minister who actually had meant it and had driven the policy is still there um, in office, but not in power, having ceded most power to her, secret- to her Chancellor of the Exchequer, in effect, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Bank of England is kind of confused as to whether it's tightening monetary policy because it has a lot of inflation, or whether it's printing money and buying bonds because the bond market's uh, in trouble. So the situation is kind of exuding disarray. There is a modest effect from the fact that British investors who need liquidity are divesting foreign securities as well, and that's affecting the global economy. There is a larger effect, which one might call a reputational externality, that, gosh, if this could happen in England, maybe it could happen in other places. Maybe we need to be more suspicious which is, I think, adding to uh, risk premiums uh, everywhere, I think that those effects are there. I don't think those effects are immense.
1: Great. Thank you, Larry. You've been very, very generous. I, I, we'll just, we started earlier uh, in, the, in the conversation talking about how people trained as economic scientists learn to be worldly philosophers. A non-trivial part of my education in this has been talking to you and listening to you over the last 31 years and the last hour was no no different. You you remain a, a you know a model of this and just a tremendous example of how to actually use wisdom and knowledge to in fact make the world a better place by advising advising its leaders. So thank you for your time, Larry, and thank you for all of our, our program participants. I believe this
0: webinar is at an end. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find us, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.